From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to What'd You Miss This Week. I'm Scarlett Fu. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Closed show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg Television, What'd You Miss? Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. This week was a political waiting game. Midterm elections are just days away and campaigns across the country are in their final push. President Trump isn't on the ballot this November, but he's not letting that stop him, stumping across eight states to rally his base. But he's not the only big name looking to get out the vote. Will Ferrell and Oprah both made trips to Georgia this week to campaign for Democratic gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams, who's hoping to make history as the first African-American female governor anywhere in the U.S. I sat down with the woman helping to run her campaign, Karen Finney. Karen is a Democratic political consultant and served as senior advisor to Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential run. I started by asking her about the year of the woman. It's already been a record-breaking election cycle for female candidates, including women of color. Many have cast this wave as a reaction to the election of President Trump, but I asked Karen if there was enough of a concerted effort on recruiting female candidates before this year. As women, before we get into something, we want to, we check ourselves, we make sure we're qualified. We, you know, men just kind of say, okay, I can do that, right? And for women, like you, the rule is generally you have to ask a woman three times to run. And so I have many friends that I keep saying, I'm, this is me asking, this is me asking. The other, and fundraising is another piece of that where I think for a lot of candidates in general, women in particular, though, you look at how much money it costs to run. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think putting yourself out there, putting your family through that. I mean, women face very unique biases and challenges in their races that men don't. And so there's a whole host of different considerations. And what I would say, though, is I think a lot of these women, when you take a look at their stories, as you said, many of them, they've been around, they've been working, they've been activists, working in public life, even if they haven't been in elected office. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think there was something in the aftermath. I, and I think, you know, part of that was Hillary, because I think Hillary Clinton's presidency, I happened to work on that campaign and the possibility really made women think about, well, wait a second, maybe I could do it. Mm -hmm. And certainly, I think women are very aware, in some ways in a um, more visceral way, what's at stake under a Trump presidency. Well said. Uh, I want to go back to that fundraising point, because when you compare female candidates to male candidates, the women are raising less money, even when they're in a competitive race, than their male counterparts who may be long-shot candidates. Obviously, there's going to be implications of that. Talk about the short-term and long-term implications of this, because it can snowball. Absolutely. I mean, it's like any kind of investment in some ways. People, you know, when you're looking at what candidates to support, people want to take a look and say, well, is this person viable? That's kind of the gateway question that people ask. 
ask. And for women candidates, I think uh, up until I believe it's going to change somewhat in this uh, cycle, you know, the question of viability for female candidates has been a little bit higher, that threshold. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Stacey Abrams, who's running in Georgia, uh, when she first announced her candidacy, there were some in her own party in the state of Georgia who said, well, a black woman can't possibly win, so you're not viable. And they recruited another candidate uh, to run against her. So what I think is, it's like anything else, though. The more women do it, the more it becomes, people see that it is a good investment, that it is a winning investment, particularly as you see more women running, raising serious dollars and winning. And hopefully, if we see, you know, we're going to potentially have, in some cases, a pretty just a huge number of women, not just, you know, at the federal level, at the state level, at the local level, hopefully winning next Tuesday on Election Day. And that should change, I think, the dynamic a little bit in how people view women's candidacies. It becomes a virtuous cycle. Hopefully. Let's talk about Georgia a little bit here. Um, Georgia has long been the great white whale for the Democratic Party. <laughs> yes. People keep saying changing demographics, the rise of metropolitan areas, and more young people should turn the state blue. But it hasn't happened yet. Right. Why is this time with Stacey Abrams different? So there's two things that I like to talk about in this race. Number one is Stacey herself. She's just a phenomenal human being and a phenomenal candidate. And one of the things I'll say just about women candidates broadly, if you take a look at their backgrounds, a lot of the things they've dealt with or their issues or their upbringing, not to say that men don't, but a lot of these women, the issues that they've, they've had to deal with in their own lives are issues that voters say, well, wait a second, that's just like my life. So there's a relatability there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but secondly... I would say because the way that she has run this campaign and the way they're winning, and that to me is really going to be one of the big stories out of Tuesday because, uh, you know, they have been running, we have been running a ground game, kind of an Ohio presidential year style ground game for more than a year. And if you, t- and, you know, early on in the campaign, more investment was going into our field program than actually TV and, and, and media mm-hmm. because the belief was the more people you have to knock on those doors, make those voter contacts. And one of the challenges with Georgia has been, one of the reasons that it's been kind of that white whale, as you say, is yes, the demographics have shifted, Mm -hmm. but you've got to find those voters and you've got to register them. And then you've got to stay in contact with them and make sure they turn out. And that takes time and money and a a real effort. And that's something that we've done. And hopefully what we'll see on election day is that it pays off. What's the single most important tactic to increase turnout? I mean, we see early voting has started in Georgia. Mm -hmm. And there's one uh, independent tracker that shows vote totals are up almost 200 percent versus the same time in the last gubernatorial race. That's right. What works? What's one thing that you didn't expect to work but does work? Well, I think just the times we're in, and that is people understand, there's two things One, I would say. One is understanding what's at stake. I think mm-hmm. people really recognize, and particularly one of the dynamics that has recently developed, as you see changes on the Supreme Court with women's health and reproductive rights potentially on the line, health care, other issues, particularly in a governor's race, people are now looking to, in a lot of these governor's races, saying, well, wait a second, it's going to be up to our state leaders to protect our rights Mm -hmm. if the Fed, federal government, comes after them. I think you're seeing that dynamic in New York, in the state AG's race in terms of, and the governor's race, and certainly in Georgia. That's one of the dynamics I would not have predicted. Um, and the issue landscape has really changed, I think, is another. This, I mean, health care, a majority of Georgians support expansion of Medicaid. Right. 
Right. So it's not just a left issue. It is really a central issue. Um, jobs and education and investment in education. So a lot of these issues that Stacey has been talking about from the beginning that I think we traditionally people would say, oh, those are left, you know, it's very lefty. No, they're actually very centrist and very pragmatic. How many times did someone have to ask Stacey Abrams to run? <laughs> well, you know what? I'll tell you is that probably only once. She's been wanting to fight poverty since she was a freshman in college. So there you go. This is a long-term goal for her. That's right. Um, let's talk about how you were director of communications and spokesperson for the DNC for several years. You're yeah. now working on Stacey Abrams' gubernatorial campaign. Campaign Republicans, when you look at the numbers, they control 33 governor's mansions and both state legislative chambers in 32 states. Yeah. Quite some numbers. Yep. Is the Republican Party a source of best practices or lessons, at least, uh, in terms of how you rebuild your state and local party infrastructure? So if you take a look at what um, Tom Perez has done as chairman of the party, he likes to call it the new DNC, and I think he's been very wise. And this is something that uh, when I was there under Chairman Dean, we did, and I think Tom has really taken it to a whole new level, and that is rebuilding the infrastructure in the states and understanding that you really have to run a permanent campaign because even in off years there's mayor's races there's school you know school board races you can't take your foot off the that's gas. right and it all matters because by the way that's how you're building your voter contacts and your mm -hmm. voter databases so what i would say is the republicans did a good job of having a long-term vision, but also understanding that it's not just about the presidency and the federal level races, but how you build the bench. And I think if you look across the country, one of the things as a party to be really proud of is we have phenomenal candidates running. And if they all win, I mean, they represent, you know, such great diversity in this country. So what I would say is that sort of having that long-term vision and not and not forgetting that, because I think part of what ha what tends to happen is you get caught up in the presidential year, and then you sort of forget to you got to do the work all of the years in between. And so I think that's one of the key things. Now the minute midterm elections end, everyone's attention focuses <laughs> right. on 2020. Speaking that's right. of presidential elections, that's right. Which Democrats do you have your eye on? Oh my gosh! Well, you know, here's the the problem. It's it's not which one. It's it's who's not running. I mean, at this point, there's so many people running. The list keeps growing day by day. Isn't that a disadvantage? Isn't that a bad thing? I don't. I think it will be a great thing. You know, what I hope ends up happening is that we have are able to have a conversation in this country. You know, kind of, we'll be able to put Trump aside for a, a, a little bit, maybe I don't know, 90 minutes, 60 minutes of our day, and have you know, if there are you know, Democratic debates and, and candidates and conversations, we'll be able to have conversations about issues and really be able to highlight and showcase who we are as a party, mm -hmm. our beliefs, our values, uh, and really provide some contrast. And I, I, I hope that ends up being a good thing. And I hope that everyone or anyone who's going to run really comes to that process with that in their heart and in their mind. That let's make this about, you know, how do we improve our country? How do we make people's lives better and talk about our values? You mentioned Hillary Clinton earlier. You obviously know her well, uh, having worked for her going back to the 1992 Clinton-Gore campaign. You were senior advisor to her 2016 presidential campaign. Um, there's been talk that maybe she'll consider <laughs> running in 2020. What's her read on that? You know, I, I thought, I'll tell you what I thought was interesting was that she said she would like to be president, but she wouldn't necessarily like to run again. And I thought that I think tells you uh, what you need to know. Look, I, my take on that was she was trying to keep the focus on the midterms and say, hey, let's focus on these great candidates and getting the vote turned out. And let's not, you know, we don't, we, we have plenty of time to talk about 2020.
Then we spoke with Bloomberg opinion columnist Noah Smith about the issue that President Trump has tried to make his electoral closing argument, immigration. The White House wants the Republicans to be squarely focused on the caravan of migrants making their way through Mexico and birthright citizenship. The issue has been red meat for the president's base, but Noah told us why it ignores the reality of the labor market and how the particularly contentious issue of low-skilled immigration fits in the debate. The main fact about low-skilled immigration that we have to understand is that it has decreased dramatically and almost stopped. Um, Illegal immigration has pretty much been zero or even net negative over the last 10 years. And, you know, most uh, of those people didn't really have advanced degrees. Um, Immigration from uh, Mexico and other Latin American countries, which tended to be, uh, you know, less people with advanced degrees, has really dried up. In fact, if you're talking about Mexico, people have gone back to Mexico on net over the last decade. And so... You know, you still got a few of these Central American uh, people coming in, like this caravan, or trying to come in. But um, overall, it's just not really a big thing anymore. There's not much of it happening. Is there any real uh, consequence to the economy as a result of that, though? Uh, you know, it's going to raise prices for food and, and you know, landscaping and childcare and other things like that. What? How much? So this is a straw man, it seems to have been set up by Trump to punch down, to be able to tackle, even though perhaps it's not in reality as big a problem. In fact, the real problem now is getting the skilled labor in. How how much are we already starting to see that hit certain companies? You talk about food prices, childcare, but what about the H-1B visas, the skilled labor that we're starting to see shortages of? Right. Well, it's... um It's difficult to say because Trump hasn't been in office for that long. Uh, We know low-skilled immigration, you know, trickled off like a decade ago, but but Trump's only been in office for like a couple of years. And um, but we have started to see lower visa applications, uh, you know, less less green card applications, less foreign students coming in. Um, We still hit the H-1B cap because the H-1B cap is set pretty low. And... um, not many H-1Bs get awarded at all. So we st- we're still seeing that filled up, but we're seeing, you know, less applications overall. So Trump's sort of rhetoric and his some policy changes he's made so he's not letting the spouses of H-1B uh, workers um, uh, work in America, things like that that just sort of harass these skilled immigrants and make it harder for them to come are going to have an effect. What, how are we going to see it? Is this going to be the kind of thing where we get a sort of long, slow degradation of productivity and entrepreneurship? Or, be, or will there be something more acute that you would expect to see if we really do get a uh, sharp clampdown on um, the availability and the supply of high-skill immigration? It's the, it's the former. It's the kind of this long, slow degradation. And that's the real kicker because, you know, we're not going to see... Um, you know, suddenly Silicon Valley is not just going to uproot and move to Mumbai or Vancouver or whatever. It's just going to be very slowly we lose competitiveness. And, and, you know, you'll see some stories in Business Week or whatever about how, you know, Vancouver is the new tech cluster or here these companies are setting up shop in Mumbai. And then, you know, very like earnings slightly disappoint you know, for years and years, and you see this, and then at some point someone says, you know, what happened to Silicon Valley? They were on top of the world. There's a, the politics of immigration reform, it's like there's two separate issues. There's people who, for various purposes, want to make the U.S. a more welcoming place for migrants, per, particularly for people escaping poverty and violence. And there's people who really make the case that from a business economic perspective, 
um, we should really expand high scale immigration. What is like the right nexus? Are there any countries in your view that sort of really get the model right, right where they sort of balance these similar but not exactly overlapping uh, perspectives? Absolutely, there is one, and it's Canada. They get this exactly right. It's, you know, Canada is very similar to us. You know, they're, they're right to our north, and they do this exactly right. They have a great uh, skilled immigration system, the Federal Skilled Workers Program. They bring in tons of high-skilled immigrants. It's really good for them. Um, they also give some points to people for having family in the country, so they have family-based immigration as well, and they accept refugees too. And, you know, so far it hasn't tanked their economy, hasn't tank their society. They have a very peaceful, low-crime uh, society with, really, with good economic growth. But then when you compare the economies of, of the U.S. and Canada, obviously two much different co- economies. And I wonder, how much is the economic growth here in the U.S. attributable to that immigration, or is the immigration more attributable to the economic strength that the U.S. was already providing? Well, both. Absolutely. You know, it's a it's two way causation. So both of those are going on. Canada is a very different economy because, you know, they're exporting a lot to us, mainly the the smaller country uh, population wise. And um, and they have, you know, different mix of industries. We have these wonderful industrial clusters that really make us kick butt. You know, we have New York City and San Francisco and L.A. and these kind of places that just generate so much output because you have all these talented people in things like the tech industry, entertainment industry, finance industry, publishing, you know, clustered in these clusters. Uh, Canada doesn't have as much of that so they, because they're a much smaller country. And so they're working hard to build that up. We don't have to because we already have that. But over the long term, we could lose that. And it's worth reiterating just how many foreign companies, well, how many companies have been founded by skilled immigrants in the U.S., I mean, particularly in Silicon Valley, is in like about 40% of startup culture actually founded by immigrant population. Yeah, I know. I don't know that number off the top of my head. I had thought the number was like 30%. It's, it's mm. quite high. Um, it depends on which you know, set you're talking about. Uh, but yeah, it's absolutely true. Uh, immigrants are more entrepreneurial. Actually, low-skilled immigrants are more entrepreneurial than native-born people as well. And high-skilled immigrants are like way beyond that. You know, of um, so whether people are starting like a corner store or the next big tech company, uh, immigrants are starting companies. Um, when you select for the kind of people who are willing to uproot and come to another country and just, you know, make it in this new foreign land, sometimes without even, you know, being like native speakers of the language often, uh, you're going to select for some very entrepreneurial, bold, self-starter kind of people. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Now, markets usually shrug off electoral changes, but this year, changes at the ballot are garnering more attention than usual. We discuss the potential market impact of the midterms with Tina Fordham, Managing Director and Chief Global Political Analyst at Citi. We started by asking how much we should put our faith in polls that are pointing to a potential blue wave, at least in the House. Most people haven't forgotten 2016. 
the United States has the most professional polling industry in the world, and we are the most heavily polled country in the world. And yet the margin uh, of error for opinion polls, which after all are trying to anticipate human behavior, can be as much as three to five points. So um, trusting the polls, I would say, can we, can, you know, do we know ourselves how we want to vote? Because yeah. that's really uh, what's going on. I was yesterday in Washington talking to strategists and pollsters from both sides of the aisle, and what I concluded was, Nobody has a very high conviction uh, about um, this race going into the last few days. So how do the CEOs, the strategists, the people that you're speaking to line up their portfolio ahead of this, ahead of the potential? What should we brace ourselves for, the potential outcomes and what that does to the market come next week? Well, the way that I've described this event is as more of a political signal than a market signal, right? I mean, I think um, what you would see if both houses uh, sort of by surprise went uh, to or stayed rather with Republicans, I think the market would rally because what markets are looking for out of U.S. elections is more drugs, more stimulus. Um, I don't think they're going to get it. The base case, according to polls, is divided Congress. Um, that's usually considered the most benign outcome for investors, and indeed Americans tend to like this outcome. But that's why I say I think it's a political signal rather than a market signal, because uh, divided Congress is going to mean, uh, I think, some, some difficulties and a lot of friction ahead. Um, so it surprises that markets react to. So many investors will wait on the sidelines uh, for this. It's really, you know, in my conversations with CEOs and CIOs, we're talking about the midterms as a signal of what uh, the Trump administration does in the next two years. Mm. And for world leaders, don't forget, many of whom are involved in trade negotiations with the administration or other diplomatic negotiations, they're trying to work out whether Trumpism and Trump will be around uh, one year because something happens, two years because he's a one-term president, or to get ready for six and how they respond to that. And we'll get into that a little bit later on with the global uh, outlook. I wonder, though, what you think of the argument that no matter what happens in the midterm elections, indeed, no matter what happens in 2020, the U.S. deficit will continue to increase and the U.S. will continue to issue more debt. Because for all the talk that Republicans are fiscal hawks, none of it is playing out. What does that mean for investors? Because voters don't seem to care anymore. And this is fascinating. If we cast our minds back to only a few years ago when Tea Party Republicans and that caucus was really a force to be reckoned with in Congress uh, and, of course, President Obama's, uh, you know, hopes of, of spending were uh, firmly rejected. Uh, but if we cast our minds back a little bit further, it was George W. Bush who presided over the biggest expansion of the fiscal deficit at that time with the um, Medicare prescription drug benefits. So it really seems to be about who's doing the spending hmm. um, and who has the majority. Having said that, I'm not sure um, the uh, largesse that uh, led to the the um, uh, tax cut this year will be followed by uh, the middle class tax cut that we hear from President Trump. So you're not expecting tax 2.0, even if we did see, as you say, the surprising outcome of Republicans keeping strength in both houses? We well, that'll be the litmus test uh, for, uh, for the Tea Party as a, as a concept, really, whether they uh, are able to get there. Uh, my sense and from my conversations
negotiations in Washington this week, um, neither a second tax cut nor infrastructure uh, spending of, of, you know, of any significance anyway is likely to happen, uh, whether it's a divided Congress or um, uh, the both chambers stay with Republicans. So markets may be disappointed uh, with um, uh, what happens in the second half of the term. Then we turn to Europe with Tina. There was no shortage of geopolitical headlines this week, and we began with the news that there could be a Brexit deal on the table by November 21st. Well, it's time to start paying attention because the, the clock is, is counting down to March 29th when uh, the UK will either exit with a deal um, and a transition agreement uh, or without. Um, you will forgive me if I remain bearish uh, okay. despite what we hear from Her Majesty's government, um, uh, because I really think that the big risks on the Brexit front are on the UK domestic political side. Mm -hmm. Brexit, the Brussels is a deal-making machine. Brussels makes deals. That's what it does best. Um, and it's, it's not difficult to, to imagine what a deal looks like. So let's say that Dominic Robb is right and November 21st or something like sometime around then there is a deal. It still has to go before Parliament, uh, before the Lords. There's potential for all kinds of wildcard risks, such as it gets taken to the Supreme Court mm. um, or other developments. So um, it, what's really difficult for Theresa May and for the government is how difficult it's going to be to make any kind of majority of British people happy with this outcome. Because the British people are divided. Well, it's not just that they're divided between leave and remain, which is only, you know, support for remain has only edged up a couple of points. It's that within the leavers, about <laughs> half of the leavers are not happy with either type of Brexit and either path. So for politicians, 75% of your population not being happy is, is a lose-lose. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's almost a feeling in, in, in Whitehall um, and in the House of Commons of waiting for something to happen. Waiting for a shoe to drop. Uh, one shoe that did drop, of course, uh, this month was Angela Merkel stepping down or saying that she's going to step down as head of CDU and she won't run for chancellor when her term ends in 2021. You and I, we were all talking about this earlier. Mario Draghi's term ends October. in October as well. So there's going to be a lot of change on the landscape here. And I think people maybe have taken it for granted that the players in Europe are going to stay static. Angela Merkel has been in office for four, this is her fourth term. She has outlasted, uh, I think, just about any uh, elected official in the advanced economies we could, we could name, advanced democracies anyway. Um, so yes, we've got used to her. Um, if if uh, Mario Draghi at the ECB was the economic backstop for the European Union, then, then Merkel has been the political backstop because she's been much more than just a German chancellor. She has uh, presided over the, the Greek crisis, the Ukraine crisis, dealt with Putin in a way that, you know, find me another European leader who has that kind of gravitas. And um, I personally think her approach to politics, using her background as a, uh, a quantum physicist, is phenomenal, breaking everything in tiny pieces. And finally, we wrap things up with the historic rebalance of power in Brazil. The election of Jair Bolsonaro marked a massive swing to the right for the country, raising fears about the future of democracy, but assuaging fears of some investors. Tiago de Aragao, partner and director of intelligence at Arco Advice, joined to talk about the recent market reaction and what to expect in the new administration going forward. 
If the hopes depend on the approval of the pension reform and the fiscal reform, yes, it will be a tough one. Because those two reforms, they depend much more on, on the will of the president or even the skills of their economic team. It depends on a very good tailored interlock, uh, uh, relationship with the parliament and relying on an interlocutor to do this middle ground with the parliament. And so far, we haven't seen uh, who this individual would be or someone who has a track record of being a good interlocutor between the executive and the legislative. So what is the first thing that you'll be watching for to see whether Bolsonaro can deliver economic policies that are in line with what investors would like to see? Well, the first thing that we have to see is the time frame that his economic team will prepare to deliver the drafts of the pension reform and eventually when a tax reform would also be prepared by them. Second, we would have to have some glimpse of the strategy of the presidential palace in getting the necessary votes that they, ha they need in the parliament. Right now, President Bolsonaro has enough votes to approve conjectural measures, for example, the, the right to, to bear arms in Brazil. But he still doesn't have the votes to approve structural message, uh, uh, measures, like the pension reform or the tax reform. For that, he will need an extra 60 to 70 votes, and the only way to get those votes in a parliament that is very diluted is to negotiate. And so what would he perhaps have to move to one side? What, in coalition building, what compromises will he have to make? Well, historically, building a coalition in Brazil is not hard. But maintaining a coalition in Brazil is very hard because you have so many parties to deal with and their expectation always is to get a position in the executive, either in a po to appoint the, the next minister of whatever area of the government this particular party is looking for. This is something that Bolsonaro said throughout his campaign that he will not engage on. And he believes that the parliament will support his measures based on the merit of the measures themselves. This is something that we haven't seen yet in Brazil, and for it to work well, his power of persuasion will have to be very strong, and his leaderships inside the presidential, the, the, the parliament, will have to be very agile in guaranteeing that support. Tiago, uh, we're talking obviously a lot about economic reform, but a key aspect that characterizes Bolsonaro are many of his views on social issues, his views towards democracy, and so on. Should investors be concerned about these things? Could they potentially be destabilizing where even if he checks all the boxes on sort of free market liberalizations, privatizations of the economy, that deterioration of sort of civil society potentially under Bolsonaro could prove to be a problem? Well, naturally, he has made some very complicated, sometimes appalling remarks as a candidate and pre previously as a congressman. What the market should look is how he will behave now as a president. Naturally, if he continues making very controversial remarks, although I don't see this as a literal risk for democracy as Brazil has institutions that are more stronger than many people believe and understand. This is, is bad enough to create an environment of division inside the country. And the more division you have inside the country, the more this division is reflected inside the Brazilian parliament. Mm. And division inside the Brazilian parliament can be very prejudicial for the approval of the necessary reforms. Tiago, today in Europe in particular, we saw a pickup 
in the mining stocks, Rio Tinto, for example, exposure to Brazil really picked them up. Which industry groups do you think are set to benefit the most at the moment or where could see the greatest downfall that's already been hoped and baked into? Well, it, it depends a lot. Uh, one of the main points that has been brought up, not only by Bolsonaro, but by his future Minister of Finance, Paulo Guedes, is to present a very comprehensive plan of debureaucratization, deregulation, and to unify uh, a very complex tax system that exists in Brazil to make it easier to invest. Naturally, if he goes forward with these proposals, this will be very beneficial to every sector and every foreign investor in the country. At the same time, if you have an industry that relies heavily on regulation before these messages or, or these uh, ideas go forward, then this represents a problem. More than that, if you have uh, uh, an investment in Brazil, an area of investment that relies a lot on the participation of the parliament to decide upon and to deliberate upon it, this is something that can present uh, a short-term con concern for the investor. That does it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as simple like as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+.